We're going to conclude this sermon series this morning, and um, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to look at a different uh, part of Scripture. We've been in um, we've been in First Corinthians uh, for quite a while, um, walking through this. We're going to be in um, we're going to be in Psalm 32 this morning. So I want us to go to the Psalms this morning as we end this series. And I think you'll see why in just a minute. We have talked about a lot. Uh, we've talked about a lot when it comes to uh, sexual sin. And, and I'm grateful that you have gone on this journey with me because the more and more people that I talk to as we've been doing this series, the more people are realizing how little this issue is talked about within the church, but yet how much scripture has to say about it. And so um, I'm convinced even now, being at the end of this series, um, that that was what the Lord had for us all along, was for us to open our eyes to what he has to say about something that, that we really don't uh, like to spend a lot of time talking about. And, uh, and I was even talking with somebody this morning, um, I th- and I think if we're honest with ourselves, one of the reasons that we don't enjoy talking about this so much is because if we're really honest with ourselves it's one of our favorite sins it's one of our favorites and it, and that's why we don't like to talk about it but it's so dangerous um but i want us to end on the proper note because if all we do is highlight what the bible says about sexual sin then it can it can leave us with guilt. It can leave us with shame that we don't know what to do with. And I don't want to leave you there. Um, I'm, I'm fully aware that there may have been people watching and people listening through this series that maybe for the first time the Lord is, is opening their hearts to, to the truth that they've maybe never realized before or maybe conveniently ignored for the sake of of their own wants, their own desires. But if we just stop here, it could could just heap feelings of guilt and shame on you um, without giving you also what God's word says about what what to do now. Like, what do I do now? Some, Some of you may be asking, what can God do with me now, wherever I am? And all of us may be in different places. Maybe we've, um, maybe we've messed up before in the past, but we've corrected it. Maybe, maybe we're living in the midst of sexual sin right now. And I believe the enemy would have you think, well, I'm, I'm broken, I'm useless, I'm dirty. Um, God, what can God do with me? I don't know that he can do anything. And that's not true. What should my response be? is the question I want us to, to answer this morning. If we find ourselves in the midst of sexual sin or maybe in, in, in dealing with past sexual sin that we've never dealt with before, what should our response be to all that we've read and understood about God's design and purpose and, and boundaries for sex? What should my response be? And probably an even, even greater question is not... Not just what should my response be to God, but what is God's response going to be to me? 
So I want us to look in Psalm 32 this morning uh, for good reason. Psalm 32 was written by King David. And there are actually four psalms that most scholars believe David penned um, specifically after his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And Psalm 32 is one of the psalms that most scholars believe David has written in response to, to that event in his life. Without retelling the whole story for the sake of time, uh, you can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So maybe what you want to do, if you're unfamiliar with the story, write 2 Samuel 11 down, go back this afternoon, read that story for yourself. While David's army was at war, he was at home. His sexual desire led him to adultery and then to commit murder to cover it up. He was on the roof of his palace. He sees this beautiful woman bathing. He sees her. He sees how beautiful she is. He's aroused enough to inquire who she is. He has her brought to him. He spends the night with her, has this illicit, adulterous affair with her, and then gets word from her that she's pregnant. And then he develops this elaborate scheme to try to cover up what he's done. And everything from bringing um, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home from war, trying to get him to go home to sleep with his wife so that, so that then this child, it will be assumed that that child belongs to him. That doesn't work because Uriah has more integrity than David in this moment. That doesn't work. And so David is so desperate to cover up his sin or to escape the consequences of it, he directs for Joab to send Uriah into the front lines, retreat so that Uriah will die, and that's what happens. And then the, the prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him with his sin. And David um, repents. And it says that the Lord forgave David of his sin, but, but there were consequences that were created by David's sin that David could not escape, that God did not take away from him. And he had to live with much of that pain for the rest of his life. So the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. How could David be called that after engaging in such deep, deceitful sexual sin so let's look at psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 of psalm 32 says blessed is the one whose transgressions are what forgiven say it loud whose sins are covered blessed is the one whose sin the lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. I love the way David begins Psalm 32 because we know what's on his heart, we know what he's done, but he doesn't start in the past, he starts in the present. Now he's going to go to the past in a minute, but he begins Psalm 32 not in the past, but in the present. Where am I right now? And David says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered, 
and, and whose sin the Lord has not counted against them. He's saying, this is who I am right now. He's about to go back and talk about where he was, but he starts out by establishing right from the beginning, this is my identity, this is who I am right now, and that's really important. He uses that word blessed. It's the same, same kind of word that, that's used in the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It, doesn't, it, it means happy, joyful, exuberant. And you say, how can David say this about his life after he had been through so much? After he had experienced the depth of this kind of sin and still living out the consequences from that sin, how can he say that he's blessed? Now flip over to, to Psalm 51. Again, another psalm that David is writing with this event on his heart. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be what? Clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Folks, the Lord exchanges sin for purity that's what david is celebrating in psalm 51 here in these verses you see where he says in verse 8 let the bones you have crushed rejoice he's talking about the weight of nathan's words when nathan came to him and called him out on his sin held him accountable for it and he's and he's expressing the emotions of how that feels to have the conviction and the weight of the authority of God's word spoken into his willful, premeditated sin. He says, the bones, he said, my, my bones, you've crushed my bones, but it says, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Crushed bones don't rejoice, right? If they had remained crushed, there would be no way for them to rejoice. He's expressing the the weight of that sin on him in that moment of conviction, but it leads to rejoicing. David begins Psalm 32 in the present reality of his forgiveness and renewal. So I want you, wherever you are, to do the very same thing. Lots of times when we think about sexual sin, it takes us to our past. I, w- I, want you to, I want you to focus on your present, like David does at the very beginning. What, what's true right now? What's true about you right now? I'm so grateful that David starts out with the present because I know so many people who have stories of, of sexual sin in their life. And if we're all honest, all of us have some sort of story. It may just not be public. It may be a private story. But all of us have some kind of story. But there are folks who have experienced very, very public stories of sexual sin that everybody knows about. But I'm so grateful that I know so many of those stories that start out the same way Psalm 32 starts out with redemption, with forgiveness. 
And folks, when we talk about sexual sin, if verses 1 and 2 are not part of the story that we're telling, we're not telling the right story. You understand that? When, when we talk about sexual sin in the life of a believer and we've experienced forgiveness, we've experienced grace and restoration from that sin, if we're not talking about that, then we're not telling the right story. We can't just, we can't just focus in. That's why today is so important. The instruction of God is important. That's what brings conviction. It was the word of Nathan, the prophet, that brought conviction in David's life. But, but there was restoration after that. And so we've got to tell the story of restoration. We've got to be, we're, we're, we're not telling the right story if we're not talking about how the Lord has forgiven you. And if this is something that's been a part of your life in the past and the Lord's forgiven you, talk about it. That's part of your story. Yeah, you say, well, I'm, a, I'm ashamed of my sin. I'm ashamed of what I did. Yeah, but there's somebody else that's struggling with, with what you struggled with too. And how powerful could it be for you to tell your story and, and, and for your story to begin like verses 1 and 2? But how did David get to verses 1 and 2? Like, How did he get to that present? That's what the rest of the song is going to talk about. Look at, look at verses 3 and 4. He starts out in his present state of forgiveness. But look at verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now suddenly from verse 2 to verse 3, he's in the present in verse 1 and 2. He's living in the light of the forgiveness and the restoration that God has given him. But then he goes into verse 3 and he shifts back to the past. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. There was a time in David's life he acknowledges that he refused to deal with his sin. He said, I kept silent before the Lord. He didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to confront it. He wanted to live in it and pretend that it was okay. What kind of rationalization might... David have experienced or what kind of rationalization might he have used to refuse admitting his sin before God Some, it may have been entitlement sometimes we don't confront we're silent about our sexual sin before God because we think we deserve it David may have said I'm the king I can do what I want sometimes it's just pure indulgence we remain silent about it before the Lord because we like it too much. Rather than wanting to turn away from it, we may find ourselves in a place where we want more of it. And then sometimes we rationalize it with the, the cover of innocence. It's not going to hurt anybody else. What's wrong with it? David probably encountered all three of these in his life as he was dealing with what he did, as he was being silent before the Lord. But the result of his unrepentant silence is there in verses 3 and 4. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
your hand was heavy on me. That wasting away and groaning is talking about the physical and emotional stamina that he felt sucked out of him. That it took a toll on him physically in his body and emotionally carrying that sin around, not revealing it, not confessing it. And he says, your hand was heavy on me. It's the conviction of the Spirit. Heavy conviction, he felt. And he says, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You know how that feels physically? We're approaching summer. It's about to get really hot. You know, you know what that feeling is physically when you're just, you've been outside for a long time. Maybe you've been working all day outside in the heat of the day and the sun. And you come in and you have no energy. David's talking about his soul there. And he says, the weight of carrying this sin around in me, the, the weight of the heaviness of conviction from God, my attempt to try to justify it constantly, it, it sucked the life out of my soul. And I just want to I, I say to you, if you find yourself in that place, now or ever in the future, where you're remaining silent before God, you're finding yourself justifying what you know is sinful based on everything that we've talked about for these past four weeks, it's clear, it should be clear whether whatever you're questioning, is this okay for me to do? You know. You know if it is or not because the Spirit tells you. The Word tells you. It's plain. But some of us may be putting in so much effort to try to make it okay. We're not just talking about adultery or just premarital sex. We're talking about those. But this, this applies to all kinds of sexual sin, to lust, homosexuality. It applies to all kinds of sexual sin. And what I want to say to you is if you find yourself in this place that David is describing in verses 3 and 4, please don't stay there because what God has to offer you is so much better. What he gave to David, he can give to you. And that's what this psalm is all about. Sexual sin would have continued to suck the life out of David until he surrendered his will to God's will. And there were consequences that David endured and and let me say this to you you may be thinking well you know what i i know i'm doing something right now that's wrong but it's it's not really affecting me you may be listening going you know what i'm really not experiencing any bad consequences right now if you're not now just give it a little longer the consequences of our sexual sin oftentimes will hide from us and maybe in the moment, we don't see the consequences. But the consequences are there, and oftentimes they will hide, and they will show up later. In future relationships, I talk to teenagers I know, all the time, and all throughout my years of student ministry, who are indulging in sex with multiple people, and not experiencing any negative consequences. Now, 
But when you find the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, that's when those consequences are going to creep up. That's when you're going to experience pain because there's something that you want to share with your spouse at that time that that's going to be difficult to share with them in the purity that God desires for you to have. And, and sometimes the consequences will hide. But we have to acknowledge that. Look at, go back to Psalm 32 and look at verse 5. So David said, I, I was keeping silent before the Lord. I wasn't addressing this sin in my life. And it was, it was doing damage to my soul. It was sucking the life out of me. Verse 5. Then I what? Acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Forgiveness came, but something had to happen in David's life before he could experience that forgiveness for what he had done. And here's, here's a point that I want you to remember in the midst of this. We must find agreement with God before we find freedom in God. Before, before we can experience the freedom of forgiveness, we have to agree and acknowledge that what we're doing before the Lord is wrong. And, and David said, as long as I was hiding it, as long as I was covering it up, I wasn't talking about it, I was justifying it in my own mind, my, my soul was wasting away. But there was a moment that I acknowledged my sin to you. Basically, I looked up and said, God, you are right. I've got to quit lying to myself. I've got to quit lying to you. What I'm doing is sin before you. And he says, I didn't cover up my iniquity. And I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. We have to acknowledge sin. And this is what makes all of these types of sexual sins so difficult to deal with because the world doesn't want to acknowledge them as sin. We live in a world, we live in a culture who says that's not sinful, that's normal. That's, that's reasonable. That's just what people do. But if we allow ourselves to fall into that worldly view of sin... And don't acknowledge that it really is sin in our life. We're never going to experience the freedom of forgiveness. Society's views of sexuality is not the standard for what is and what is not sin. God's word is. The standard is not what we see in movies. The standard is not what's on television. The standard is not what is written in the self-help book. The standard is God's word. You can find anybody who will tell you anything you're doing is okay. It's not hard. But, but David says, I finally came to a point where I was willing to acknowledge to you that what I was doing was wrong. And God's response? Forgiveness. He said, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Uh, 1 John chapter 1. 
verses 8 through 10. John talks about this in this letter. We've been studying this on Wednesday night. But chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, the Apostle John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What kind of unrighteousness? How much unrighteousness? All of it. But it comes with confession. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. But we have to confess that it's sin. We have to acknowledge that it's wrong and it's, and it's in direct disobedience to God's word. And then he says again in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we, have, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. You see how plain John is in that? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. When we take what God says in his word is sin and we actively engage in it and then we say it's not really sin john calls us liars and we're not only liars ourselves, but we are making god a liar but when we confess it when we acknowledge it god i've sinned against you god's response to david was you forgave the guilt of my sin now, in the rest of the psalm, it's as if David is, is giving counsel and advice. And in Psalm 51, I believe it is, he actually says, I will, I will give counsel. He's basically saying, God, the, the instruction and the correction and the forgiveness that I've experienced in you, now I'm going to turn around and I'm going to tell other people about what you've done in me so that I can do it, so that you can do it in them too. And that's kind of what the rest of Psalm 32 is. Look at verses 6 and 7. And let's just quickly go through the rest of these verses and see how David counsels us. What kind of advice, like if, if we want to get advice from somebody about how to deal with sexual sin in our life, then, then David has experience. He has experience not just in the depth of the sin, but he has experience in, in the grace of forgiveness. So look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The first thing he says in verse 6 is that we respond how? With prayer. Once we acknowledge that what we've done is wrong, we cry out to God. David cried out to God in prayer, and he says, not just me, but let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Sexual sin will attempt to shame us into thinking that we're too dirty to approach God. And for some of us, that's why we keep silent. Maybe it's not that, that we're arguing with God or trying to justify it so much, in our life, maybe it's, it's we know that it's sinful, we know we've messed up, but we're not addressing it because we think God doesn't want to hear from us because we're too dirty. 
We've done too much to be forgiven. So what, is, what do we tend to do when we feel dirty and unforgivable before God rather than run to him, which is what he wants us to do, we go the other way. And then we, we usually begin to embrace that sin more and more and more and we're just drifting further and further away. But David says, let the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Back over to Psalm 51. Again, we're kind of jumping back and forth. Verses 16 and 17 in Psalm 51. David says to God, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. It's a hard moment to acknowledge our sin before God and come to him broken. But that's what he wants. He wants us to come to him in our brokenness. He doesn't want us to try to correct and put ourselves back together with with some kind of lame um, glue of morality before we come back to him, he says, I want you to come and bring all your pieces. And bring them. My sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So he says, pray, come to him. Run to God, don't run away. And then look at verses 8 and 9 in Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, and and they will not come to you. David's talking about humility in those verses. That if we choose to stubbornly ignore the instruction of the Lord, that God will and can use consequences to get our attention. David is saying, look, if you want advice from somebody who's been there and done that, and let me just tell you, listen to God's instruction first. Don't be like me. Because God had to use the circumstances in my life to get my attention to draw me to repentance, like a, like a mule. He says, don't be like a horse or a mule. <laughs> don't be stubborn like me. Because respond to God's word now. Listen to what God's word has to say now, because I didn't do that. And because I didn't do that, God had to use circumstances he had to get my attention through bad things to draw me to him like like the the bit or the bridle on a a mule or a horse like he had to pull me to get me to where he wanted me to go when if it would have been way easier if I had just listened to his word and obeyed it in the first place does that make sense be humble before the lord Listen to his word. I think David would say, quit, 
quit trying to think you have a better way of doing it. Just listen. Just listen to what he says and obey him. And then look at verses 10 and 11. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. <laughs> Look what David calls us in verse 11. Upright in heart, righteous. And he says the unfailing love of God surrounds the ones who trust in him. You may, you may read those last two verses and go, I don't feel like that. I don't feel upright. <laughs> I don't feel very righteous. But you can. You can walk in this identity. Your sin is not unforgivable. It's, it, it, there is a way for God to take whatever you're doing or whatever you've done and put it back together in a way that brings glory to him and good for you. But he says in verse 10 that the ones who feel the surrounding of the unfailing love of the Lord are the ones who trust him. And so all of this wrapped up together, the question I want to leave you with is do you trust God's design for sexuality in your life? Do you trust God enough to take his instruction? off the pages of his word and apply it to your life, do you trust that it can be true for you? Because let's just be honest, willful disobedience to God's word, at the heart of that disobedience is distrust. What part of God's design for sex are you struggling to trust in? Just think about that. Is, is there part of the design that you're not trusting God with and that's the reason that you've shifted your, your pattern of living in it. Why have you stepped outside? What part of it do you not trust will be true if you just follow his direction? I want to say to the ones who are holding on to, the, to their virginity, and let me tell you something, if you whether you're, you're a young person or an old, older person, if you're holding on to your virginity right now, that can be one of the most difficult things in the world to do, especially living in this culture. It becomes even harder sometimes when we find the person that we're going to marry and we get engaged. Sometimes that's, it's really easy to justify it then, right? But if you're holding on to it, I, w I just want to tell you, keep holding on to it. Trust God with that, no matter how difficult or how painful it is. Are you sexually active right now? Are you actively engaged in some kind of sexual sin that you know is wrong, either premarital, you're having some sort of adulterous relationship outside of your marriage? Are you living together? You got plans to get married, but you're, you're not. You say, well, Eric, you haven't really talked about that. Living together, there's nothing in the Bible about living in the same house together. If you can live together in the same house and not sleep with each other, then you're probably right. 
There's nothing, there, there's nothing in Scripture that says that, but I've yet to see that be the case. Whatever it is, whether it's adultery, whether it's premarital sex, whatever you're dealing with, I don't want to just tell you to stop, but I want you to ask the question, why will you stop? Don't stop because the preacher said so, because that won't do you any good. Of course, I counsel with couples, even couples who are getting married, and maybe even they're months away from getting married, and I counsel with them and find out they're, you know, if they're living together or they're sleeping together, and we sh- share with them what God's Word says. If it says, if you want to you make a new commitment to go into your marriage in a way that honors the Lord, you can just stop right now. But don't stop because the preacher told you to. Like, why, why, what will be your motivation for stopping? For honoring his word. It goes back to what Alan was talking about, our students talking about at retreat last week. Because you love something greater than your sin. That should be our motivation. You know, when Jesus, in John chapter 8, we know the story of the woman caught in adultery, right? One of my favorite New Testament stories ever. And after that whole scene had played out and the Pharisees had come accusing this woman, stones in their hands, ready to carry out the law, what the law said, holding someone else accountable for the sin that they were guilty of themselves, but they didn't want to acknowledge it. They were keeping silent about their own sin, which is exactly what David did too. We talked about in this psalm. And once Jesus gave them permission to stone her only if they were worthy to do it, meaning they, they had no sin on their own and they realized exactly what he was saying and they all walked away because there was only one man there who was worthy and righteous enough to condemn her for her sin and it was Jesus. So after that had played out, and he looks down at the woman and he says, where are all your accusers? Are there none left? And she says to Jesus, no, they're, they're, no one's here left to accuse me. Really kind of what Jesus was saying, is there anybody here who's worthy to accuse you? And she said, no. And then he said, neither do I. You know why he said that? Because he was the only one who could condemn her. And he says, but I'm not going to. And he lifts her up. And he says, go and sin no more. You know why she got up and lived a life of purity from that point forward? It wasn't because of the Pharisees. It wasn't because of the law. And it wasn't because of the rule It was because of the forgiveness. It was because of the grace. So, if you, if, if, do not misunderstand everything that we've talked about for four weeks. This sermon series has not been about, here's a list of rules for you to keep. You better keep them. The question is, why would you not? In light, of what he's done in light of the fact that he has picked us up from the guilt 
of, of the accusations of the law coming against us. And he's picked us up and he says, I could condemn you right here and right now, but I'm not going to. And he picks us up and he says, go and don't sin anymore. Stop. Why would we not change our course? Why would we continue to live in the sin that Jesus has lifted us up from? What joy is Jesus offering you in exchange for your sin? What forgiveness is he offering you in exchange for it? Is Jesus' radical love and radical forgiveness enough to draw you out of sexual sin into a life of purity? And you say, Aaron, my life is not pure. My life is so far from pure sexually, like you have no idea. So, so was hers. But the moment Jesus says, I don't condemn you anymore, and he stood her up, and he says, go and sin no more. From that moment, everything started over for her. Everything started over. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify means it's completely gone. So if you've not had that moment, you can have it. You can have it today. You can have it right now. That moment of starting over, that moment of of being forgiven, being purified, cleansed from all unrighteousness. That can happen right now. And that's what he offers.